I'm Eric Slater. I'm Chris Carroll. And this is Epic Fails of History. A podcast that delves into the most epic fails of, um, history. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The only thing we have to fear is fear Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Epic fails. Reality is frequently inaccurate. Douglas Adams. The war for Jenkins ear? I'm Link Flores. G'day, I'm Elise. I'm from the Super Switch Club. This is Ben from Dragoon Effect. I'm Dan from the Temple Trek Podcast. And welcome to Epic Fails of History. And welcome back to another random episode of Epic Fails of History. As always, I'm Eric Slater, and for this episode I decided to try something a little different. This is actually our third anthology episode to date, so if you haven't already, go give episode 14 and 18 a listen. On episode 14, I interviewed a few different people about some of their favorite random tales of fail. And for episode 18, we did an Earth Day special where I invited podcasters from around the world to submit their stories on some of the worst environmental disasters of all time. For this one, I decided to kind of combine those two ideas and open it up to anyone and everyone to submit a random history story of their choice. So earlier this year, I started reaching out to various creators and podcasters about doing a new compilation episode. People from all different backgrounds, ethnicities, genders, and regions. Some of who were busy, but said that they might submit something for a future episode. But I'm really proud of who we were able to get, and I appreciate each and every one of them for being able to submit an entry for this episode. What's funny is I actually originally started working on this way back in February, uh, but it got delayed like crazy, because of course it did. Episode 30 ended up being a nightmare in editing, and I was helping to finish up a massive renovation project on our kitchen. As a result, I ended up really behind on schedule on a few different projects, and wasn't able to get back to this one until after finishing up the Indiana Jones season for Podcasters Assemble, which was awesome but it also ended up being a massive undertaking. Best laid plans and all that. So to Elise and Link, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your patience with me and my ADHD. Regardless, there's a whole lot of great stories on today's episode. G'day, I'm Elise. Uh, I'm from Season 4 of the Super Switch Club. Uh, We're currently playing through the award-winning Nintendo 64 game Banjo-Kazooie, and it's a really fun time. So go and give that a cheeky listen for some great laughs. I have a neat, epic Australian fail today, but I wanted to give an honourable mention to a couple that star some of our fantastic native animals. Australia has loads of bizarre animals, a couple of which caused some intrigue and alarm to the early settlers. The Tasmanian devil caused a stir with the early European settlers who when they heard the unearthly growls and screams, they believed that it was actually the devil himself. Uh, Hence the name, and it just stuck. Next, we have the platypus. Uh, This poisonous, fur-covered, duck-billed, egg-laying mammal was so strange, it took years for it to be accepted as a real animal. 
drawings and skins were sent back to England by the settlers, but people thought it was just a hoax and something that they had sewn together out of several other animals. And during the Second World War in 1943, Winston Churchill demanded that a live platypus be sent to him as proof, but sadly the monotreme died on the way to England. My main fail today begins in 1824, where there was an expedition to find some new grazing land in Victoria, but this trek did have its fair share of dramas, including a frying pan being literally pulled apart. Hamilton Hume was born in June in 1797 near Parramatta in New South Wales, Australia. And when he was around 15, he moved with his family to Appen. And a couple of years later, he fully embraced this move and began exploring the area to the south, where he gained his extensive knowledge of the area. He learned some really useful bush skills, and these helped to get him picked by Governor Macquarie to join in on several expeditions around New South Wales. Governor Thomas Brisbane wanted the land between Lake George and Bass Strait, which is almost 400 kilometres of exploration as the crow flies. He wanted that explored, uh, but no one had the finances to support such a trip. Hamilton had wanted to fund his own trip to explore this little chunk of land, but after planning a trip to what we now know as the Spencer Gulf in South Australia, he realised he couldn't afford it either. Enter Alexander Berry. Alexander and Hamilton had been on several expeditions together and Hamilton was given a grant of land in Appen after one such trip. He used this land to start his own farm and then even got his hands on some land in the Yass district where he set up another farming station. Alexander Berry introduced Hamilton to a former sailor, William Hovell, who lived on his own grant of land at Norellan, about 30 k's away. William Hovell was born in Norfolk in England in 1786. So William was only in his early 20s when he commanded a trading ship in South America after proving his seaworthiness. In 1813, after moving his family to New South Wales, he worked for Simon Lord as a captain of coastal and trans-Pacific trading vessels. New South Wales isn't exactly known for being a great coastal town even now, so I guess it wasn't that flash then either, because a few years later he took up farming on his grant of land in Norellan instead. William had done some exploratory trips, uh, but mostly he was just an excellent navigator and he had been considered for Governor Brisbane's unrealised expedition, so he did offer to take part in Hamilton's journey and to share the cost. It ended up being pretty much just the two of them that funded the expedition. Hamilton sold his iron plough, which is a highly sought after for the new farming colonies, and William sold some of his land. The government helped out a little bit and gave them some pack saddles, a tent and clothes for their convict servants. Convicts have got to serve their time, and I guess trekking across the Great Dividing Range is a pretty good way to learn your lesson. They also had a team of bullocks, some horses, and supplies to last four months, including a couple of muskets and ammo, just in case. I would love to know what animals they saw on their trek. Tassie tigers would have still been around then, so that could have been fun. So off they went. From Hamilton's farm in Appen, they marched off to his other farm station in Yass near Lake George. This is where the expedition would officially start. And on the 17th of October, they set off into the outback to find new grazing land and areas never seen before by the Europeans. They didn't have a real easy time of it, needing to cross Australia's second largest river, the Murrumbidgee, and to navigate across sections of the Great Dividing Range. The bollocks had a pretty rough go of it on the steep terrain, and William and Hamilton argued about the direction to take through these mountain ranges. Keeping in mind, these are the ranges that have our tallest mountain, so they're pretty serious. William, being older, was probably used to being in charge and had extensive navigational experience, but Hamilton was far more knowledgeable about the landscape. These disagreements escalated to the point where they went their own separate ways. 
splitting the expedition supplies between them. And when I say split, I mean literally. They cut the tent in half before arguing over who got the frying pan, which they then played tug of war with, and of course it broke in half. Neither of them wanted the other one to be able to use it, so each of them kept their respective halves. Children. Not long after this dramatic parting of ways, they met up again after William, so much for being older and wiser, realised he had gone the wrong way. They did keep the tension in their relationship, though, when Hamilton threatened to throw William into the Murray River. William continued to prove his navigational skills did not translate to the Australian outback after he misidentified Corio Bay as Western Port Bay. Western Port Bay is only a short 100 k's further east as the crow flies. This error was identified about 18 months later, when after the pair reported their discoveries to Governor Brisbane, he sent a party via sea that included William to see this new land that they described. William then realised his mistake. I mean, if you look at the two, you can understand why. They're big bays of water, they both open out slightly to the southwest. It's an easy mistake to make from land. So it turned out that while Hamilton was the better navigator for the expedition using his local knowledge and skill set, William actually discovered what is now known as the Port Phillip area, which opened it up for settlement and is now known as this little city we like to call Melbourne. Staying true to their rivalry, they did have to argue about who did what in their expedition. During a visit to Geelong in 1853, William Woods named the discoverer of the region, and reading these press reports enraged Hamilton and he took it to mean that William was taking all the credit for their discoveries. Both of the guys printed pamphlets telling their version of events during the expedition, but Hamilton remained pretty pissed off until his final breath in 1873. So in the end, despite their dislike for each other, they actually worked pretty well together and did manage to discover that grazing land that they were after with a bonus chunk of land that would become very important. So thanks for sticking it out, guys. Australia appreciates your epic fail. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Epic Fails of History. I'm Link Flores, and I'll be sharing with you a couple of anecdotes today as I was invited to participate in this compilation episode. And in the spirit of Black history, I thought we should talk about some epic slave escapes that should have failed, but absolutely did not. Let's start off in 1838. This is one that may be a little familiar to some people if you're a real big literature buff. So a woman named Eliza Harris actually escaped slavery uh, while carrying her infant grandchild. Being pursued through the snow and across the Ohio River, she got stuck at one point and looked at the river. She's, that was her escape route. She got stuck there because it was winter and the river hadn't quite frozen all the way over. Instead, large chunks of ice were just floating down the river. There was no boat available, no bridge. It's not about to risk swimming it, especially not with a baby. So here's what she does. She straps this baby to her back and like Mario trying to complete an ice level, leaps from ice float to ice float to cross the Ohio River. The crazy thing about this is, as if that wasn't enough, on the other side of the river, there was a slave catcher that was there specifically to try to stop her. However, upon witnessing this Herculean feat of agility, not only did he not capture her and send her back, he actually pointed her to freedom and cheered her on. So that was wild enough. But here's where things get a little crazier. She went back to rescue her five other grandchildren, even though she had a bounty on her head. 
the story was so impressive that when Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, that anti-slavery book that's so familiar to everyone, when she heard the story, she included it in her book and named the heroine character Eliza in honor of Eliza Harris. How's that for awesome? Here's another story that you probably are familiar with to a certain degree. There's a man named Henry Brown, who was a slave in Virginia and obviously wanted to get out. So what did he do? He built a three foot by two foot box, packed himself into it, and had his friends drop him off at a shipping company so that he could be mailed to Philadelphia. The way it should have failed is he should have died in the box. Not only was he five foot eight and 200 pounds, all of the stickers that were on the side that said this side up were completely ignored. And Henry Brown was actually stored upside down on his head. He later claimed that he almost died from suffocation and from losing consciousness from the blood flowing to his head. But somehow, without opening the box, he managed to right himself and get right side up for the remainder of the trip. Of course, when he arrived at his destination in Philadelphia to freedom, you know, he told everybody all about it. What an amazing escape, right? He became so popular that he actually made a lot of money on a speaking tour. This didn't please some abolitionists, namely Frederick Douglass, who claimed that he shouldn't have mentioned the way he escaped at all, in case other slaves may have heard about the story and wanted to try to make their escape that way as well. I guess there's a little bit of sour grapes there, maybe some why didn't I think of that. Also, I get where he's coming from, but hey man, he made it to freedom and almost died. Let the man have his flowers. That's what I say. But an impressive story from a man who later became known as Henry Box Brown. The last story I'm going to share with you is one that's probably familiar to quite a few people, actually. Uh, it's a man named Robert Smalls, who, as a slave in South Carolina, was conscripted into the Confederate Navy. This is kind of what the Confederacy did. Whenever they had a problem they didn't have enough manpower to tackle, they threw slaves at it. So they put them into the docks to build ships. They put them into the factories to create the weapons they needed, you know, so on and so forth. Well, Robert Smalls wasn't about to go out like that. Instead, while he was working on this ship called the Planter, he learned the secret hand signals that allowed the ship to navigate the harbor at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, so that they could be taken out to sea without being fired upon. He also memorized the plant of every mine in the harbor, mostly because he had helped do that. That was part of his job. Well, at one point, he actually does manage to take a captain's uniform fake the hand signals, and steer the ship out of the harbor under the watchful eye of you know, the cannoneers and the gunners at Fort Sumter. And this tickled the white people on the ship so much that they actually entrusted him with the ship when they got out off to another shore and docked to go get drunk in town. So what did Falls do? He took advantage of the opportunity and loaded up a bunch of slaves and other families, put them on the boat, headed to freedom. That's where he surrendered the ship, but he was so impressive because of his, obviously, acumen with, ship, with sailing and the amount of subterfuge that he pulled off getting out of there that he was actually given command of the planter and was the only black naval captain of the entire Civil War. After the war, he actually became a successful businessman and later a politician, serving not only in the South Carolina House of Representatives and the Senate, but also in the United States House of Representatives as well. His career stretched from 1868 to 1887. In 1877, he had a little bit of this hiccup where he was accused of and convicted of accepting a $5,000 bribe, but it was a clear setup to attack his political career. But it was so obvious that even though he was you know, convicted and you know, had to go through the entire process, he was later pardoned by the governor of South Carolina. Mr. Smalls lived to a very ripe old age. 
passing away as an absolute legend on February 23rd, 1915 in his hometown of Beaufort, South Carolina. And those are just a couple of the amazing stories of survival and ingenuity that came out of the escapes of slaves trying to escape obviously horrible conditions. And I hope you enjoyed hearing some of these legends being retold again. Just a reminder, I'm Link Flores, and I'm so honored to be a part of this opportunity to compile stories with other creatives. Thanks to Epic Fails of History and Eric Slater for inviting me to be a part of this. And if you'd like to get to know more about me or maybe see some of my other escapades, you can always find me on Twitch about four days a week at twitch.tv slash linkib. That's L-I-N-K-I-B-E where I do a variety of game streaming, sometimes some art, sometimes some cooking, sometimes some podcasting. Thanks a lot. Once again, have a wonderful February, Black History Month, a lovely 2023, and hopefully I'll see you guys again soon. So we've covered a lot of strange conflicts on this podcast before. Back on episode one, we talked about the Anglo-Zanzibar War, which was the shortest war in history, lasting only 45 minutes. Uh, as well as, of course, the Great Humu War of 1932, which we covered back on Episode 6. Not to mention the Pig War of 1859 and the Canadian Beaver Wars throughout the 1700s. But perhaps one of the weirdest wars in human history is something called the War for Jenkins' Ear. And yes, it's as absurd as it sounds. This was an entire conflict that lasted from 1739 to 1748 and was sparked due to an incident involving the loss of an ear that belonged to Captain Robert Jenkins. That's right, his ear. It all started following the War of the Spanish Succession, after terms were agreed to in 1731 with the Treaty of Utrecht. England and Spain made a 30-year trade agreement that allowed British ships to trade 500 tons of goods in the Spanish colonies. Britain granted the Spanish Navy the right to stop and search their ships. Like paranoid highway patrol officers seeking contraband drugs, some of the Spaniards were kind of jerks about it. Turns out the Spanish were right to be suspicious, seeing as they were in fact hiring pirates to smuggle goods across the sea. But one particular search went a little too far. On the 9th of April, 1731, a merchant vessel, the Rebecca, under the command of Captain Jenkins, was stopped by the Spanish Coast Guard off the coast of Cuba on their way from Jamaica. The Havana captain of uh, La Isabella, Julio Leon Fandino, was apparently having a really bad day and decided to take it out on poor old Jenkins and his ear. The Spaniards raided the British brig in search of illegal goods, looted their treasure, plundered their provisions, tortured their crew, and threatened to set the ship on fire. If that's not enough, they then tied Captain Jenkins to the mast and left him with a warning. According to Jenkins' report, the Spanish captain took hold of his left ear and with his cutlass slit down, and then another one of the Spaniards took hold of it and tore it off, but gave him the piece of his ear again. Jenkins was then supposedly told the same would happen to King George if he were caught smuggling again. But for all we know, he may have heard him wrong, seeing as he'd, you know, just had his ear lobbed off and all. Eight years later, Robert Jenkins was still complaining about his ear to anyone who would listen to him. The obsessive, grudge-holding sailor somehow managed to preserve his severed ear in a bottle of wine and carried it around wherever he went. 
Meanwhile, as tensions increase between England and Spain, the war doves convinced Bob to bring his pickled ear before Parliament and gross them all out while he theatrically reenacted his tale of woe, showing off his gross old severed ear. The British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole, was reluctantly engaged in yet another conflict, but officially declared war on October 23, 1739. The Spanish king, Philip V, suspended the treaty and began confiscating British ships in Spanish ports. British troops were sent in to Gibraltar, a fleet was dispatched to the West Indies, and on November 20th, 1739, six ships of the line under the command of Vice Admiral Edward Vernon attacked Portobello, Panama, and were met with little resistance. Vice Admiral Vernon's success at Panama was followed up by his greatest failure at the Battle of Cartagena de Andes in 1741, where Vernon's 186 ships were embarrassingly decimated by Don Blas de Lizo, a Spanish admiral armed with only six ships, not to mention one eye, one arm, and one leg. At least he still had both ears. The war was waged along the Florida-Georgia border. Should be noted that this was pre-Gators-Bulldogs rivalry. Florida was a Spanish territory first established by Ponce de Leon in 1513, while allegedly seeking the fountain of youth and Georgia was a newly established penal colony just north of Florida, where they often shipped debtors and convicts alike. During the war for Jenkins' ear, Georgian governor James Oglethorpe led a failed attempt to take the heavily fortified Spanish city of St. Augustine, Florida. In response, St. Augustine's governor, Manuel Montiano, led an attack against St. Simon's Island in 1742, also unsuccessfully. The resulting Battle of Bloody Marsh was over in just a matter of hours. A few skirmishes later and the war was over in 1748. Considering this war is barely a footnote in most history textbooks, it did have profound effects on the world at large. Most notably, this was the pivotal moment where the British Empire became the most powerful nation in the world, surpassing the might of the Spanish fleet that had dominated the world's oceans since the discovery of the Americas. Ultimately, this petty squabble that became the War for Jenkins' Ear devolved into a European-wide conflict known as the War for the Austrian Succession in 1742, when Spain and England both took opposing sides of the conflict, which directly led to the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763 and its North American spin-off, the French-Indian War. The aftermath of the French-Indian War caused Great Britain to raise taxes on the Yankee colonists, And we all know how that went down. The rest is American history. To sum it up, this entire war between England and Spain, which lasted nearly a decade, costing the lives of almost 25,000 people, was sparked due to a petty squabble over one man's ear. By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and me, you and me, oh how happy we'll be. Hello and welcome to another mini epic fails of history. I'm Dan from the Temporal Trek podcast and thank you Eric for inviting me back. Now I'm here to tell you a story of what is an epic fail for one group but an epic win for one particular individual. 
Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the previous time when we were talking about a ship that was burnt to the ground here at the Chatham uh, Dockyard, I work for the Chatham Dockyard and I do tours. Um, Normally we have our tours of our ships, but on a very specific special day, we have a big 1940s festival where it's not about glorifying the war, but celebrating the food, the fashion and uh, the, the effort that went into working at the dockyard during the conflict of the war, but also the entire decade of the 1940s. Uh, so it's not about glorifying the past. And as part of that, I become Air Raid Warden Dan. Uh, depending on uh, what I'm feeling like that weekend, I either have a very upper-crash British accent, and I'm a, an officer who's visiting the site, but is a, a stand-in Air Raid Warden, or I'm just uh, just one of the uh, one of the lads, you know, a bit of a, bit of a foreman, making sure that uh, you all get down your shelters, you say um so uh, the character changes but the story always stays the same we take you into a real l raid shelter uh it's an air raid shelter that was designed for the officers uh the officers are in a sort of a, a separate turret so when a ship comes in for refuel refit and supply the officers would then stay at that location then their families could come and visit them uh so they are a separate shelter next to that is what we call the tennis courts which is basically just a green lawn just outside those shelters and that tennis court was the site for um a particularly heroic act from one individual all based on this epic fail but first i'm going to give you a little bit of background during world war ii the luftwaffe were trying to um attack britain in a way that would uh, destabilize demoralize the people of england uh, but would not affect the infrastructure uh, hitler had made it very clear that he wanted to uh, keep the british isles virtually intact when it came to the machinery and the infrastructure because that Ireland could be used as a staging ground, as he saw it. Um, he could have Chatham Dockyard to resupply and refit his ships um, and, and the U-boats as well. But by keeping it intact, they have a ready-made dockyard uh, that is sandwiched between a very large city in Rochester, historic Rochester, and uh, protected by these large hills which uh, form Gillingham here in the Medway in the UK. Um, The command of the heights and command of the oceans is the big theme uh, in our area because you had these fantastic hillsides which were brilliant for AA gun emplacement, and then the dockyard which then could uh, be free to build ships completely undercover and not be spied upon by, say, uh, French spies from the Napoleonic era all the way through history, unlike Portsmouth, which is completely exposed at the bottom of the country. Because of that high level of defence, the arc of fire, as they used to call it, as there were gun emplacements not only on the hillside, but a nearby Upnor Castle, and of course in Rochester itself, three points of fire completely protecting the dockyard. It was very hard to hit that spot, even if you wanted to try. The way that they thought they were going to attack was rather than destroy the dockyard, rather than take out the workforce, who might also be useful, however they did take the full brunt of any air raid assaults, the best way to attack a dockyard is to attack its river, to make the river unusable by your enemies, and then once you take over, you clear the river and it's yours again. The way the Luftwaffe were going to do that was by using the parachute magnetic mine. 
Now, the parachute mine is actually a naval invention that was used by both the Luftwaffe and then later adopted by the RAF. However, the RAF preferred to uh, mine land-based targets as opposed to rivers, whereas the Luftwaffe were using it in two different ways. During the Second World War, the Luftwaffe used a number of different kinds of parachute mines. The key two ones were the Luftmine A and the very imaginatively titled Luftmine B. Both weighed different poundage, it could change, they could be adapted, and they could be altered. Once the parachute opened, the mine would descend at around 40 miles an hour. It would come down to the land, and a clockwork mechanism would then detonate the mine 25 seconds after impact. Basically, trying to make sure that there were as many casualties in the area, because if anyone comes near it, they are then taken out. By landing in water, it could then safely sink down to the bottom. And some of the uh, Luftmine A's were fitted with magnetic detonation devices. The effective use of this being that you go down to the river, wait for a ship that needs repair or refit to come into the dockyard. The magnetic mine is then attracted to a said ship, goes straight up and destroys it before even coming into the dockyard. There may be some superficial damage to the outside walls of the dockyard itself if the ship is somewhat close to the structures, uh, but overall the mechanics, the infrastructure of the dockyard would be unaffected. The ship itself would be taken out of commission and, of course, the lives on board. Several different things went wrong with this, however. As we all know, when you introduce water into the equation, water pressure would dissolve the, the lining of the water-soluble plug. This would then deactivate the mine, making it completely useless. Um, it is still believed that some of the metal of these mines can be found at the bottom of uh, the Medway River, which uh, is in our area. Fortunately, all the mining equipment inside uh, has been removed. They started off as magnetic detonators, then became magnetic acoustic detonators. So they were activated by a sound as well, so a sound wave. So if the ship were too high up the surface and the mine too far down, um, it would then be uh, activated by a significant motion in the water, creating enough sound so that it would detonate, not necessarily completely destroying the ship, but it would guarantee that if the mine were so heavy and stuck in the mud, that it would then inflict some sort of damage. It would not be completely out of use. The first effective use of these mines was in November 1939, where the Henkel-He-115 seaplanes and the 111 land-based bombers were taken out using these. The HMS Belfast, which currently sits in the Thames, was actually damaged by a parachute magnetic mine uh, on the 21st of November in the same year. The threat to shipping as well, uh, not being able to get any kind of supplies into the country was also a significant advantage of using such a parachute magnetic mine. However, there is a word, a very operative word to this kind of mine that um, generates a problem, shall we say. And for this, the word parachute. Now, parachute it's all good. We all know they work. We've seen them on the movies when your uh, hero jumps out of a plane and then obviously safely goes to the ground, exactly where they want to be. However, they had to contend with the British weather. And on that note, it's over to Dan with the weather report. Thank you.
Alex Dan. As you can see, due to this high ridge of pressure just over the lowlands here, um, you really don't have a chance of mining pretty much anything in the UK. As uh, there are squally winds coming up from the south, um, you just might as well give up now. British rain is so thick at this point and because of London's smog and smoke, um, you might as well just give it over to what were you thinking. And that's all the weather for today. Back to Dan. Thanks, Dan. And on that note, we come to the epic fail of history. In 1940, HMS Pembroke was about to pull into Chatham. It had taken significant damage and was in need of vital repair work. The Luftwaffe were already going to hit several targets in London. On the way back, they were going to deploy some parachute mines and try and mine the River Medway just by Chatham Dockyard. It was, for the most part, a success. The mines fell into the area. However, the British weather had other ideas. One of the first mines was pushed away by a gust of wind hitting a nearby church. Two mines did make it to the river but were so lodged into the mud and mire of the Medway River, which is pretty dirty, believe me, even now, they were rendered inoperable within seconds. A fourth parachute magnetic mine landed on those tennis courts I'd mentioned earlier, completely missing its intended target but could have done a lot of damage. Nearby, there were factory workers, around about 10,000 lives in the blast area. Easily could have been lost. The parachute magnetic mine snagged. It caught its own parachute and plummeted to the ground at around the 40 miles an hour, straight into the tennis courts, creating a 16-foot pit. It lay there. It was also outfitted with a brand new kind of anti-withdrawal device. Should anyone creep into that pit to try and defuse it, it could go off at a slightest touch. Now, fortunately, at the Chatham Dockyard, there was a gentleman by the name of John Herbert Babington, a British school teacher who later became a Royal Naval officer and an expert at defusing bombs throughout World War II. He was actually attached to HMS President, which was in the Thames at the time, but was down at the dockyard visiting because of the nature of what the Pembroke had gone through and several uh, ordnance that was on board. Babington was never too far away from a bit of fishing wire. He used to keep a kit with him at all times. He had some fishing wire on him and he saw the 16-foot pit. He climbed to the edge of it and looked down towards the mine. He realised that if he could get in, attach the fishing wire to the withdrawal device, creep back out, and then slowly tease it. If it did detonate, there was enough surrounding uh, regolith and detritus from all of the impact that it would probably soften the blast. So he crept in, not knowing if every footfall would set off the mine. He attached the fishing wire to the fuse. He then slowly crept back out and began to tease the wire backwards. After a few moments, he realised that there really wasn't any resistance. If the anti-tamper device were somehow dislodged, it really didn't feel like it. He peered over the edge of the pit, only to see that the fishing wire had snapped. Now, if that were me, I would have run, just in case. However, John Herbert Babington was made of surer stuff. He climbed back in, reattached the fishing wire, again not sure if every footfall would set off the mind with an acoustic device. He climbs back out and begins to tease again. The fishing wire breaks a second time. This process is repeated a third time, 
The process is repeated a fourth time, and eventually he teases out the withdrawal device, an entire two hours of agonising waiting to see if it would detonate. Quite rightly, in December of that year, he was awarded the George Cross for gallantry. Overall, he saw many rewards come his way and was eventually knighted at the end of the war for his efforts in all bomb defusal. So, what do we have to learn? Maybe don't use a weapon that is entirely dependent on the weather when you're attacking Britain. That's probably the biggest takeaway, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this has been a mini epic fail of history, at least for one side of the war. Back to Eric. By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and me, you and me, oh, how happy we'll be. So back on episode three, we did an episode about World War One, but we, we've really yet to do an episode on World War Two. And part of the reason is because there's a lot to talk about there. But one particular story that always comes to mind when it comes to uh, epic fails of history is a little something known as the Maginot Line in France. The Maginot Line was a defensive perimeter built between 1929 and 1940. At the outset of World War II, France was still recovering from the First War, the Great War. And as we've talked about before, this was primarily conducted with trench warfare a completely inefficient method of conquering territory, but an ideal form of slaughtering one another's army across lines drawn in the sand with tons of casualties and no real change. Trench warfare was all about fortification, digging in and not letting up, primarily fought with poisonous gas and machine guns. Years later, when Nazi Germany got all hostile, France uh, spent the next decade gearing up for another round of trench war. The French Minister of Defense, André Maginot's brainchild, was implemented. The world's greatest fortification was constructed along the border of France and Germany. In preparation of the inevitable German invasion, France poured all of its military resources into developing an impenetrable, fortified position along the border of France, with more accessories than an Optimus Prime Transformer, including anti-tank artillery and over 150 retractable turrets. This intricate high-tech trench base had a labyrinth of underground facilities with everything from mess halls to airlocks, enough to make a Bond villain proud. It was kind of like the coolest frickin' G.I. Joe playset. The ultimate defensive fortification complete with action figures and hidden passageways, except when you rip it open on Christmas morning, you come to find out that it's missing parts along with fine print on the box that clearly states, artillery batteries not included, additional accessories sold separately. The people of France praised the genius of these elaborate defenses. The problem was that war had changed. That was then, this was now. Unfortunately for the French, they never got the memo. The Maginot Line was an impressive concrete superstructure that stretched for 943 miles, cost roughly 3 billion francs, and took about 11 years to build. Unfortunately, it only took 5 days for the Germans to circumnavigate its defenses. Insert face into palm. Now, how did this happen? A couple reasons. The first variable to consider is that France never really expected Germany to attack. The Maginot Line was simply an insurance policy. France was under a false sense of security. 
Their ultimately mistaken strategy was based around the assumption that the Germans would employ the previously failed Schleffen plan from World War I. Another aspect to take into consideration is that they didn't take the ruthless Nazi tactics of Blitzkrieg into account. Nazi Germany's very own brand of lightning-fast warfare based on versatile movement and deadly speed. The Maginot Line would prove to be an irrelevant relic of military history. The French figured if the Nazis did invade the neutral states of either Switzerland or Belgium, their allies would join them in an effort to fight back. However, the Nazis didn't give them a chance. The thick reinforced concrete structure along the Maginot Line might have been impassable, but it wasn't too difficult to go around it. In May 1940, under the command of Field Marshal von Rundstedt, German infantry tore through the Ardennes, a heavily wooded area that remained relatively unguarded with panzer tanks clocking 60 miles an hour and drove right through the unprotected portion of the line. When word reached Gamelin, the French commander-in-chief, he decided to suppress reports to avoid widespread panic under the impression that such a small regiment would be easily taken out by French reserves. He was wrong. General Gamelin's eyes remained fixated on the northern border with Belgium, awaiting the real invasion. Meanwhile, a full-on German invasion commenced with little resistance through a gaping hole in the Maginot Line. The officers of the French High Command were not prepared to alter its perceptions in light of new intelligence reports and suffered drastically because of it. By the time they realized what was happening, it was already too late. Seriously though, the Maginot Line could give the Death Star a run for its money in the overlooked vulnerabilities department. In this case, however, the plasma exhaust port was apparently wide enough to drive several tanks through. France ultimately surrendered to Nazi occupation as Hitler's forces poured into the back door of France's perimeter fortress. Within the month, an armistice was signed on June 25, 1940, in the very same railway carriage where Germany had previously been forced to do the same in 1918. France was effectively put out of commission for the remainder of the worldwide conflict and remained under a swastika flag until June 6, 1944, D-Day, when the Allied forces came to their rescue and helped to bring an end to the Fuhrer's evil schemes for world domination. Hello, this is Ben from Dragoon Effect, an audio-only Let's Play podcast that cares about your mental health. And I'm here to provide some quick-hit epic fails. My first epic fail is just two words. Ronald Reagan. Moving on, our first story comes from my home state of Iowa. This is the story of the Sullivan brothers. There were five brothers born between 1914 and 1922. All of them enlisted in the Navy in 1942 for World War II. All five were assigned to the light cruiser USS Juno. This ship was sunk later in 1942, and while not everyone in the crew was lost, all of the Sullivan brothers were. The youngest brother, Albert, was survived by his wife and son. The others were unmarried, while a couple did have fiancés. This story provided some inspiration for the movie Saving Private Ryan, and there is even a scene where they are mentioned as a reason to perform the mission to save Ryan. There's also a rock song called Sullivan by Caroline Spine that also tells this tragic story. Our next story is a lot lighter. By now, Everyone knows the stories of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, but what about the third co-founder of Apple? This is the abridged story of Ronald Wayne. Ronald also worked at Atari, but while the Steves were in their 20s, he was 41. He was considered the adult in the room, and as such, 
held a 10% stock of Apple, while each Steve held 45%. The idea being that Ronald would be an advisor and help break ties along with doing other work. In a partnership, all partners are legally responsible for repaying any debts. Having worked for much longer, Ronald had accumulated many more assets compared to the Steves. After just 12 days, Ronald sold his stake for $800 and later received another $1,500 to forfeit any future claims to Apple. Ronald has said he believed in Apple, but was worried about significant bumps along the way that he just couldn't risk. While 10% of Apple is worth a lot today, in 1976 there was still a significant amount of work and risk ahead. Finally, being a podcast that cares about mental health, I need to tell one related story. Our final story is a sad quick hit. Antonio Igas Moniz developed the lobotomy, for which he won the Nobel Prize in 1949. Very shortly after, in the early 1950s, we saw the invention of antidepressants and antipsychotics. All those people who were victimized by his procedure were not far from receiving help that would not have entirely eliminated their capacity to live. Howdy ho, failureinos. It's your old buddy Chris here for another episode of Chris's Conspiracy Corner. And uh, I'm going to be talking about a couple of conspiracies today. One of my favorite nonsense, ridiculous fun theories, the hollow earth theory. And one of the stupidest conspiracies there are, the flat earth theory. And they're obviously nonsense. Chris's Conspiracy Corner. To begin with, one of our more famous conspiracy theories out there these days is the flat earth theory. And, um, you know, we all know somebody or who somebody who knows somebody or what have you that believes that this nonsense is true or at least that there's some kind of merit to it. You know, we've known that the uh, earth is round since about the third century B.C. So I- I'm sure these YouTube warriors have got it right and not 2,300 plus years of scientists. And third century B.C. is not like these guys were advanced and they still figured it out, you f- dummies. Anyway, the prevailing theory, the fringe element that kind of came up with this started in around the 50s. They are dedicated to insisting that the Earth is flat. And it generally they believe it's in like a disc shape and that any evidence that the Earth in fact is round, say, you know, pictures taken from space, stuff like that, uh, are all part of an elaborate hoax, which of course involves multiple governments. There's a lot of different theories about exactly how this works and why it works this way and everything like that. Suffice to say, they're all absolutely nonsense. And they usually kind of make up their own interpretation for how physics of the solar system work to make their theories work. Um, It's just, you know, when your base theory line is absolutely ridiculous, it's kind of hard. You have to do some mental gymnastics to support it. Yeah, so... Oh, this is one of my favorite things. Uh, there was a national poll done in 2017, uh, so pretty recently, that found only 1% of Americans believed that the Earth was flat, with an additional 6% saying they weren't sure. So 7% of Americans polled believed that the Earth is or could very well be flat. I know 93% is a pretty huge majority, but 7% is way too high. I mean, good God. Uh, 
Yeah, okay. Well, sorry. A lot of these flat earth gatherings seem to be kind of crackpot conventions uh, where a lot of the people there believe crazy stuff like all politicians are actors and there's like shadow forces and all kinds of crazy shit. A lot of lizard people believers there. But they oftentimes are looked at kind of like tarnishing the good name of the other flat earthers who are like not, you know, I've believed in this since before it was cool. The leading flat earther theory right and like i said there's a lot of them but the leading theory holds that the earth is a disc with the arctic circle in the center and antarctica is actually a i think it's about 150 foot tall wall of ice that surrounds the rim of said disc and this wall is guarded by nasa to prevent people from just you know climbing over and truman showing themselves off the side and I mean, I, I don't know. I, they also believe uh, Earth's gravity is an illusion. Some do, um, because some believe that the disk is uh, is moving upwards at, at like an insane rate and uh, pushed upwards by dark energy. And others believe it just it, it just sits on rocks and that everything kind of spins around us. It's uh, you know just crazy so one of the main things people ask about is like which you know if this is this flat disc sitting here and everything what about the moon what's the deal with the moon or the sun or these other planets and some believe that they're spheres but the earth is still flat and others believe that the sun and moon move in circles above the disc and that uh <laughs> In this version of our solar system, the Earth day and night cycle is explained that the sun and moon are spheres that move in circles above the plane of Earth. And that stars and that stars move on a different plane. I, oh, oh, a lot of them also believe that there's an invisible anti-moon that obscures the moon during lunar eclipses. And I know I'm kind of losing the thread here. But my favorite thing is these people have, like, their scientific method is, like, I watched some YouTube videos, and the horizon's flat, and if it were round, how come it's not curved when I walk? And, like, you don't tumble all the time. Like, they're just, they're the the kids that didn't listen in science class, and uh, they don't understand basic physics, and just have convinced themselves that scientists, especially NASA, are all a bunch of liars in on this huge conspiracy. Uh, and my favorite thing about the flat earth conspiracy is that what's the goal? Like, what do they prevent you so they know that they're lying and so that NASA gets a bunch of money to go into fake space? I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Speaking of absolutely ridiculous, I cannot talk about the flat earth theory and flat earthers without mentioning one of the more, we'll say tragically hilarious stories. Uh, and that's regarding Mad Mike Hughes, who uh, was a limo driver turned stuntman. And not only did he spend a lot of time building homemade rockets, but he did that because he wanted to shoot himself to the edge of space in part to prove that the Earth is flat. Now, that wasn't necessarily like his only driving force, but it, he kind of, you know, like a lot of these people fell down the rabbit hole. And uh, as he continued on with this project of his towards the end, it kind of became the driving force. His third rocket launch attempt was sadly his final. And on February 22nd, 2020, uh, Mad Mike died at the age of 64. The rocket went up and then uh, I guess on the way up, it hit off of a ladder that was propped up next to it, which tore off one of the parachutes, 
which I'm not sure would have done much because the rocket soared up in an arc, disappearing into the sky for a moment or two, and then started to fall. And there was a freelance journalist named Justin Chapman who was writing a book about Hughes. And he was at this final launch. And he says, quote, And as it's coming down, everyone started realizing that his parachutes weren't coming out. Even if they had at this point, it was going to be too late. And he nosedived directly into the desert floor. It was like a lawn dart. And it hit the ground somewhere between four and 500 miles an hour. The last part about the lawn dart was added by uh, Waldo Stakes, which was uh, Mad Mike's close friend and collaborator, and the guy that taught him how to build rockets, which is maybe not a credit I would be throwing out there were I Waldo. See, the thing is, Mike was actually like an excellent driver and stuntman and daredevil kind of thing, or at least a good one, but he fell down the rabbit hole of crazy. He embraced a lot of conspiracy theories, including skepticism about science and gravity, because of course, to the moon landing being fake, that the planes brought down the World Trade Center, 9-11 was an inside job, and, you know, steel doesn't burn shit, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, you know, this guy just kind of fell down to the dark side of these conspiracy theories. They're all fun to talk about and they're fun to play around with. But when you start believing they're real, uh, it can really make you believe that like nothing is is really what it seems to be. And uh, lead you down some crazy ass paths and drive a rocket directly into the ground at 500 miles an hour. So let that be a lesson, kids. The earth is round. Uh, and if you don't believe it, a rocket crash will kill you. Now, if you've seen the uh, COVID-era Kong vs. Godzilla on HBO Max, you know that according to the MonsterVerse, that it is uh, Hollow Earth is is kind of real, and then in the, in the center of the Earth, instead of it being a molten core, there's a gateway to like this really weird upside down tropical paradise kind of savage land sort of place. That's that's not the, the case, guys. I'm sorry, it's just not. Unfortunately, for for the fun side, scientists have come along and killed everybody's buzz and proven that the Earth uh, is comprised of an unbroken series of layers, crusts, and liquid magma. And it all surrounds a dense, super hot core. And that's made primarily of iron and nickel. No, not the coins. But before the discoveries about the different layers of the earth were, uh, you know, official, I guess, or were made, uh, many quote unquote scientists themselves believed and studied the theory that the earth was hollow. Yeah, and they all kind of seemed to put their own unique spin on this particular theory. Uh, but the, the, the core was the same, that the Earth was hollow and possibly sustained life. One of the things I found reading into this is that a lot of this started with Dante's Inferno, which was published in 1320, which refers to Lucifer falling from the sky, uh, quote heaven, and into the Earth, or hell, uh, where he still resides today. And they believed that, like, oh, that's real. Like, he's in the center of the Earth. Like, that's where he really is because it's this big hollow area and that like, he's just stuck there. <laughs> That's why you don't mix religion and science, kids. One of my favorite things is that there was a, a, a key scientist, I will say, in the Hollow Earth movement whose name was John Cleves Sims Jr., who I guess was able to kind of garner enough attention and followers for this theory of his that he was able to request in, I believe it was 1822, yes, 1822, that Congress themselves fund an expedition for him to go to the North Pole where he believed that one of the entrances to the hollow inside of Earth existed. 
Thankfully, cooler heads somewhat prevailed, which is rare in Congress. But he was ultimately shot down for the grant. But he kind of continued to push for this until his death. Uh, I just thought that it was really funny he was able to even get a request into Congress for that. I think a lot of the the wishing this was true might come in part from the Jules Verne book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, which of course has influenced a lot of pop culture stories in the 160 years since it's been published. And uh, I'm sure contributed to people at least wanting to believe uh, that parts of this are true. So basically most believers in the hollow earth theory believe that the inner earth, as they call it, uh, is this lush tropical paradise, which of course is home to much further along advanced creatures that make us humans look like chimps. Who knows? Uh, but they're usually described as lizard-like, because of course, and much stronger than anything that the outer earth could sustain. Uh, I guess because of pressure, or whatever. It's just <laughs> a lot of people also believe that there's a, an atmosphere in there that's that breathable, of course, and it even has its own inner sun to sustain growth so that there's not like a heated core, but there's a sun in the middle of the earth because they don't know what suns are and how that works. You freaking dummies. So yeah, the crust of the earth itself is anywhere from three to 44 miles thick. It is made of solid rock. And we know these things not because someone Harry Stamper to drill through it, but because of seismic waves, it's the same kind of test that you do when you go like for an MRI or an EEG or something like that, that show an x-ray that shows, you know, what's inside your body and how it moves. Same thing. They did it on earth and they were able to determine what each strata, what each layer of uh, the earth was comprised of. And unfortunately, none of it was giant, empty, cavernous regions filled with King Kongs and super strong lizard people. So, sorry to rain on your parade, Hollow Earthers, but uh, unfortunately, your theory is nonsense. Hey folks, quick update on the Bracket of Fails. Bracket of Fails. We recently had a tiebreaker for round three, and it came down to 50-50 between President Andrew Jackson and Christopher Columbus. So I went ahead and reached out to social media on Twitter, Instagram, Discord, and our Facebook group to settle the debate. My co-host Chris says, Columbus by a nose, the dirty b****. My other co-host, Justin, says, Columbus is the worst human of the two. Elise says, Andrew Jackson by a slim margin. Cause god what a c***. Lee Plum says, Jackson. Brett Ricketts, who was part of our Cuban Missile Crisis two-parter back in Season 2, says, Oof, sh**. This is a tough one. Jackson. Slavery and genocide. May he rot in hell. Rashid Dukes says, A hard one. I go with Andrew Jackson. Rich Tiberius Logue says, Andrew Jackson. Columbus was mostly ignorant of the damage he was doing. Jackson was right, Link Flores says, Yes? I feel like both is also a viable answer. But Andrew Jackson wins only because American people are so in love with their founding fathers and all that jazz. Douglas S. Coleman says, I'll go with Jackson. Let's change our city's name to Jax. And Devin Norris posted that famous gif with the Native American woman flipping the bird and saying, Fuck Christopher Columbus. So that brings our final tally to 3-7 to seven with Andrew Jackson in the lead. So President Jackson will be moving on to the final four next time. So stay tuned for more on how you can vote in the Bracket of Fails semifinals. Epic wins of history! 
This week's epic win of history is Cathay Williams. She was the first African-American female to join the U.S. Army in 1866, disguised as a man, and later became the first and only woman to serve as a Buffalo soldier. It's also worth noting that numerous women had served throughout the Revolutionary War and at least 400 women served during the Civil War, disguised as men, but many of them didn't get the recognition that they deserve. For this week's epic win of history, we're talking Madam C.J. Walker, the first black woman millionaire in America. She made a fortune from a homemade line of hair products. This self-made millionaire used her fortune to fund scholarships for women at the Tuskegee Institute and donated large parts of her wealth to the NAACP, the Black YMCA, and other charities. Epic Wins of History! Once again, thank you so much for listening, and a huge shout out to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. I'll have links to everyone's work in the show notes, so definitely give them a follow. If you would like to have a short segment featured on a future episode, check out the link to the submission form down there as well, or on probablywork.com. As always, feel free to reach out to me on social media at Eric Slater, that's Eric with a K, Slater with a D, D is in Delta, if you have any questions or comments. Check out my other podcasts on the Probably Work Network, including Podcasters Assemble, a movie podcast, and the Super Switch Club, a Nintendo podcast. And you can support me directly by buying my books on Amazon and Audible. In the meantime, we've got even more random tales of fail coming your way soon, so stay tuned for more epic fails of history. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called probablywork.com. Hello, future Eric. It's past Chris. Nice to talk to you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to an episode of Epic Fails of History. This is your friend and narrator, Uncle Ruckus, no relation, and I'm here to tell you a little about some epic fails about slaves that escaped, even though they probably shouldn't have. Um, so, oops, sorry, my screen just went dark for a second. Emperor Caligula, <laughs> Emperor Caligula, yeah, can't talk. Emperor Caligula, yeah, Caligula. And, and they believe that these things... God, I'm sorry. I kind of lost my train of thought here, Eric. Okay, uh, here we go. Finally, being a bot... Brit Wreckett? Brit... Brit. So, I'm sorry to rain on your parade, uh, but the Earth is just as hollow as... No, that's terrible. The French Ministry of Defense, Andre Maginot. The French Minister of Defense... Andre Maginot followed up by his greatest failure at the Battle of Cartagena de Indias and the subsequent and the subsequent Andre Maginot, the French Minister of Defense, uh, had. Oh God damn it! How do I put this? I just got your Facebook message a minute ago about keeping this short, each one short. So uh, mission failed there, but a lot of that's editable. So feel free to chop the shit out of it.